hi there, Karen here. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. As a result, you may experience varying microphone levels. Thanks for understanding, and thanks for listening. Hey you, thanks for listening to Working Overtime. Before we get to today's episode, we have a really exciting announcement to make. We're now on Patreon. Whether you've just discovered the show or are a longtime and loyal listener, check out patreon.com slash working overtime to learn how you can become a patron and support our content. As a patron, you'll have access to a wide array of bonus content, chances to interact with Karen and show guests, and even hop on episode recording sessions with us. Check out all of the great benefits of patronship at patreon.com slash working overtime. Now let's fire up the time machine. At one glance, I loved you with a thousand hearts. They can hold against me no sin except my love for you. Come to me. Don't go away. Let the zealots think loving is sinful. Never mind. Let me burn in the hellfire of that sin. At One Glance by Lady Mary Hatun, Ottoman poet, born in 1460, died 1506. The intensity of this love poem calls to mind the tactics used by Ottoman sultans to woo the most desirable in their harems, or private households comprised of hundreds of women. But this poem, written from the viewpoint of a woman, by a woman, and published within the elite all-male literary establishment of the Ottoman Empire, is an extremely rare example of a woman subverting her marginal position within Ottoman society to her own advantage. Equally, then, it hearkens to the achievements of certain power-playing women within the Sultan's harem itself. Intrigued? Hope so. Listen on. Hey there, Dr. Karen Bellinger, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Working Overtime, the podcast that examines society through the lens of work, throughout human history. Happy new U.S. president, everyone. And I do mean everyone. For some time now, my home country of the United States has been under an increasingly dark and just really dispiriting cloud of social division, which has erupted into violence that simply has no place in a proudly democratic state. Now, We've got a long way to go before the founding edict of liberty and justice for all really is the reality for all Americans, but I, for one, am feeling more hopeful today than I did even a week ago that it's a reality we can realize through hard work together by focusing on what links us rather than what divides us. Okay, enough political philosophizing, at least as it relates to America. On to today's topic. If I were to ask you which empire reigned longer, the Roman Empire or the Ottoman Empire, which would you say? Okay, answers please. If you said Rome, nope, so close. To be fair, it's a surprisingly little known fact that the Ottoman Empire ruled for a century longer than Rome. For over 600 years, it was the multicultural meeting point of Eastern and Western worlds. It's this fascinating, enduring power center where we're going to find ourselves today, 
with popular historian Jem Deducci to walk us through the imperial household of the great Ottoman rulers, or sultans. And we're going to focus on a central but often misconstrued aspect of this traditional Muslim household, called the harem, and the sometimes surprising influence it had on Ottoman politics. The members of the harem, the sultan's many wives, concubines, and servants, were enmeshed in a dizzying web of responsibilities and, for those savvy enough, unique opportunities for political maneuvering in a world where the alternative to being attached to the Ottoman ruling machinery was, well, pretty much yikes. So, all aboard. Time machine's about to take off. Next stop. Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople, been a long time gone. Constantinople, now it's Turkish delight, on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, now Constantinople, so if you've a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul. Today, we are speaking with Jem Duduchu on the topic of harems of the Ottoman Empire. And I'm going to ask Jem to start us right off by telling me whether I've introduced that topic the way somebody from the culture of the Ottoman Empire might have done so. Uh, well, hello, everybody. Uh, I am Jem Duduchu, and I think you can guess by this name, it ain't Anglo-Saxon, so I actually have <laughs> some Ottoman heritage going on there. So the reality is this is an English-language podcast, so we're going to anglicize all the names. So, for example, perhaps one of the most famous Ottoman sultans is uh, Sultan Mehmet the Conqueror, Mehmet II, the guy who, conquered, uh, who captured Constantinople in 1453. Now, everything I've just said is accurate, but uh, if I was Turkish, I would not refer to him in that term. I would say Sultan Mehmet Fatih. So, um, so yes, I can, sounds, I can do it. It sounds a little more exciting that way. It, it, I've it sounds say. more is exotic, a, doesn't it, it? No, that's a horrible colonialist thing for me to have said. And so I t- actually, I take it back. Um, it's a very <laughs> um, ethnocentric thing for me to have said. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always really fascinated by, by these, these issues of, of culture and perspective. Uh, and we can we can really do a, an interesting deep dive on that in the with the Ottoman Empire. But just before I guess we go there is the fact that you know where does the word harem come from? And it actually comes from the Arabic haram, and haram means forbidden. So, for example, pork is haram. It is it is a forbidden food for uh, a good Muslim. So it, it is a forbidden place. In this case, it's forbidden for men because it's where the women are, and it's the only person allowed in. In the case of the Ottoman harem uh, in Topkapi in Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, the only man who's a fully intact man allowed in is the Ottoman Sultan. Therefore, ensuring that any babies that come out of that harem uh, are indeed his. Amazing. All right. So let's let's start out with the 101. Tell us what the Ottoman Empire is, when and where it existed. So uh, in, in my book, uh, The Sultans, which is all about the Ottoman Empire, unsurprisingly, I talk about how it's a forgotten empire. At its peak, round about 1600, you're talking about an empire that covered the entire uh, strip of North Africa, 
you know, from Egypt to Algeria. We're talking about the whole of the Middle East, uh, all the way to the borders of, of modern day Iran. We're also talking about Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and then into the Balkans going as far north and west as Hungary. So that all that- That's not shabby. That's no, not shabby it, it's at a all. huge area, <laughs> very similar to the size of the Eastern Roman Empire. That would be a pretty close approximation to it. Um, however, uh, in, in the modern era, almost every country I've just mentioned doesn't like to talk about their Ottoman past. Uh, they, they pretend it never happened. So uh, the one country that's still very uh, passionately linking themselves to the Ottoman Empire is the modern day Republic of Turkey. So, so during the era of the Ottoman Empire in the West, Confusingly, we tended to call everybody from the Ottoman Empire Turks, even though they might be Greek or Ukrainian or Algerian or whatever. You know, there are lots and lots of different ethnicities, religions, languages being spoken in the empire, like any empire, but they were generally mushed together and referred to as Turks. And today, in modern day Turkey, they confuse Ottoman with Turkish. In a nutshell, uh, why is it, do you think, that people renounce this? this heritage in, in most regions other than Turkey? Oh, that's a, that's a big question. Uh, basically, nobody likes an overlord. Um, you know, this is why today empire is basically a dirty word. So even if we are talking about a, a Muslim ruling class, there, the, the Sultan is nominally ethnically Turkish. We will, of course, be talking plenty about that in a minute. But um, so, you know, they would relate to being Turkish rather than being Arab. So, you know, that is a mm. different ethnicity to the uh, ethnicity of Turk. You know, the Turks originally are nomadic people from uh, Eastern Asian steppes, more in common with something like the Mongols than with the indigenous populations of uh, the Middle East. So in that respect, they're, they're ethnically different. So why would today Saudi Arabia look towards the good old days and in inverted commas of the Ottoman Empire? They just wouldn't. And then if you're going further west, you've got a Muslim ruler ruling a Christian country like Greece, for example. So yeah, basically um, the Ottoman Empire ruled Greece for 400 years. And while it's quite famous that Greece became independent, had their war of independence in the 1830s, the reality is large chunks of Greece were still part of the Ottoman Empire up until the early 20th century. Thessalonica, Thessaloniki, is the second largest city in modern day Greece. It was in the Ottoman Empire till 1912, I believe, if not 13. So yeah, just before World War I. Wow. Yeah, I have to say this was not a highlight in my own education. So I'm really excited to learn more about this empire. And um, I wonder if you could contextualize the emergence of the Ottoman Empire, um, you know, or its functioning at its peak within the world at large. So basically, nature abhors a, a vacuum. And what happened was, the, the legend is, why is it called the Ottoman Empire? Because every single ruler, sultan, emperor, call them what you will, are directly either a son, well, a son or a grandson or a great grandson of the founder, Osman, or in Arabic, Ottoman. So literally, the Ottoman Empire is, is the ruling dynasty. 
uh, if you look at the British Empire, you had the Georgian era. There was, you know, at the very beginning of what we, we consider the British Empire, we had the Tudors, you know, there's the Stuarts. These are different families that are only very loosely associated with each other. But literally, you can go father, son, father, son. There's a few brothers and uncles in there as well, but it's the same bloodline on the male side. So it's one family, which starts round about 1300 with uh, about 300 Turkic mercenaries. Uh, on horseback in this tiny dead-end town in modern-day Turkey called Sogut. Um, it's such an, uh, a stupid little place that even the Osman himself, when he died shortly after his death, they captured a bigger city. So they, he's not even he's not buried in the in the very first <laughs> capital city. That's how small it is. Um, but basically, uh, you you've got um, from 1453, which is when I, I said at the beginning when you get Mehmet II conquering Constantinople. Constantinople from 1453 to about 1920 is the capital city of the Ottoman Empire. Jem, how do you think other governments viewed the Ottoman Empire and, you know, particularly its special institution of the harem? So the, the, the Ottoman Empire is really one of the classic examples in the West of kind of fetishizing the exotic East, the Orient. And, you know, as soon as I start saying curly-toed slippers and baggy silk trousers, I know what you've got in your mind. You're basically thinking Aladdin, uh, be it <laughs> pantomime or Disney movie. And, and it's, it's that kind of image that um, it's very much linked to the Ottoman Empire. I mean, it is worth remembering that the Ottoman Empire was one of the major players of World War I. And yet, 1453, we're at the time of the Renaissance, so it went over an incredibly long period. Now, the actual rulers of the Ottoman Empire, once they captured Constantinople, they very much saw themselves as Western rulers, but they were Muslim rather than Christian. They had the harem rather than just individual marriages, so that they were culturally very, very different to, let's say, the court of the Habsburgs or you know, the Tudors or what have you. With that, maybe we should get one last definition before we dive in and and that's you know what exactly was the harem i know we'll talk in detail but you know in a nutshell what was in a nutshell, the harem <laughs> it's the it's where the sultan lived which sounds really boring when i put it that way it's his private residence which just happens to have an awful lot of girls in it, okay? But again, <laughs> I, I, I know, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that the people who sort of like, oh, the harem on the podcast, oh, this is gonna be saucy. And, it, and it's like, it still has this sort of image of uh, erotica around it. And look, you know, we're talking about a, a, an empire that lasted, a family that lasted for 600 years. So clearly there was a certain amount of begetting and knowing using biblical terms, but uh, you know, that wasn't <laughs> the only thing going on in there. And, and indeed, as we're going to go into, the sort of the day-to-day -day life of a woman in the harem isn't probably what you think it would be. So there, there's basically several different classifications of women in the harem. And, and I want to be quite clear about this. The only people allowed in the harem or who lived in the harem were women. Their, their function was to be the very extended family of the sultan. And indeed, all the sultan's children up until a certain age. So even the boys would stay there. But once they start getting hairy, they're going to be kicked out of the harem. So it was all just sort of a, a very extended family. <laughs> That was looked That's, over. I'm just trying to imagine, sorry, that the objective um, um, assessment, yep, he's too hairy. He, he's hairier than he was yesterday. He's yeah. 
<laughs> I'm not saying that's literally what was going on, but I think I we know. can all guess. When they, when they come of a certain age, they're going to be sent out. And, and indeed, that's uh, an important factor. There is this belief that the, the girls of the harem live there forever. Well, if you start doing the maths, it means if, if you inherit your dad's harem or your granddad's harem, then it start, stops being a place of um, nubile young women and starts turning into a care home for elderly women. So at some point, you're going to have to cycle... <laughs> cycle out the the old ones and bring in some from some fresh blood so actually you would probably stay there for about uh 12 to 15 years um so that's how long you would be in the in top Capi. top Capi is the biggest harem which is in modern day uh, istanbul constantinople it was the official one of the ottoman sultan and uh the fact is that uh, at its peak he did have a few wives, um, sometimes uh, sort of four or five wives, um, but he would have 300 concubines. Now, again, I know you might be having certain images in your head right now, but the reality was there was a lot of politics happening in the harem. So if you're the new girl freshly brought in, you are bottom of the pile underneath another 300 girls who all want to catch the eye of the Sultan. And it's on record. There, there were literally hundreds of harem girls who never got to meet the Sultan. You know, he was so in love with X over there that he didn't bother with all the other girls. So, so literally never really even interacted? Uh, probably never even that way. This is the thing. I, I mean, I mean that in a perfectly clean matters. way. I, I don't, I don't <laughs> no euphemisms there, but. I, I, look, either way, Karen, either way, my, uh, some of these girls never interacted, even perhaps saw the Sultan or saw him in the background. But for the ones who failed to catch the Sultan's eye, they would basically leave the, leave the, uh, the harem and invariably marry into the aristocracy because what's better uh, than, you know, just catching just any old girl? Well, one of the girls from the harem, you know, the sultan chose her, didn't actually hang around her, but I'm going to, I get this girl. So that it was incredibly high status. But the weird thing, I might have, everything I've said so far, you might be sitting there thinking, hmm, doesn't sound so bad, but it is worth remembering every single one of these girls was technically a slave, which means perversely, every single Ottoman Sultan is the son of a slave girl. That's one of those head scratchers. See, we talked at the beginning about the, the depth and breadth and, and longevity of the Ottoman Empire. In some ways, we could really relate to it. The Ottoman sultans were very proud of the ethnic diversity, the rigid religious diversity. When the Jews were kicked out of Spain in the late 1500s and early 1600, uh, 15th century, early 16th century, um, where did they go? Well, they couldn't go to anywhere else in, in mainland Europe. They were kicked out of England and France and Germany. They went to the Ottoman Empire. And the very first printing press in the Ottoman Empire was built by a Jewish community in Constantinople. The Jews were very well looked after under, uh, under this Islamic power. Christians as well. There was a specific, according to Islamic law, if you're not Muslim, you have to pay a tax. So actually, the Ottoman sultans quite liked having non-Muslim uh, 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 subjects underneath them because they could generate money out of them. This is an empire very much built on 
uh, an absolute dictatorship in the middle of it all and an awful lot of slavery around it. The most elite soldiers in the Ottoman army are the Janissaries and they were technically slave boys. You've got the, the harem, they're the slave girls. Uh, one of the most famous architects in all of Ottoman history is a guy called Mimar Sinan and he, he did some of the great architecture in, um, in Istanbul and, and beyond, but he was a Janissary. So he started off as a slave boy, served in the army, became an engineer, and ended up being one of the greatest architects of the Renaissance era. So, you know, there were weirdly opportunities for these slaves. And I, I want to put yourself... <laughs> I always feel I have to apologize because basically, whenever you look at history, doesn't matter where, doesn't matter when, women get the short end of the stick pretty much every time. So if you were a 16-year-old 16, 16 Serbian peasant girl who was a bit pretty, what were your realistic options? It would be lovely to say you could go to university, but let's say it's the year 1500, you, you're, you're illiterate, you're not going anywhere. The best you could hope for is marrying a local peasant farmer and he treats you okay. And you're gonna have a bunch of kids and you will probably die when you're 50. Or you catch the eye of a local Ottoman uh, lord who sends you to the harem. If you're in the harem, you're living in a palace. Okay, you can't go outside the palace, but you've got protection. No barbarians are gonna be rampaging or wild armies gonna be going through your living room. You're gonna get three square meals a day. You're gonna get taught how to read and write. Uh, these women were uh, excellent at things like um, uh, mus musical instruments and writing poetry. So suddenly they're getting something equating a higher education as these slave girls, because you you know the, the sultan doesn't want some sort of pig ignorant girl covered in sort of straw and dung. That's not really what an uh, what an Ottoman sultan's looking for. So there were actually lots of benefits. And if you did catch the sultan's eye, you never know your son might be ruling one of the largest empires in world history. Quite the quite the climb up there for the for the right kind of girl. Which sure is, and uh, you know, listening to you talk about this, it. It just begs the question of what a slave status actually meant in the Ottoman Empire. So this is the thing, I, you know, look, slavery is another conversation, but I, I think in the modern world, as soon as you say, say slave, I think we all know what we're thinking about. We're thinking about Southern America, uh, 1800s, black slaves picking cotton, and that was a brutal, terrible, no way out, zero status situation, which was appalling. But it, throughout history, there were different types of slaves. If you were a galley slave in Europe, again, it was a brutal, rough, short life. However, in, in ancient Rome, most of the teachers were Greek slaves. These people would live in the homes of like Roman senators and would have the right to beat disobedient children, the senators' kids. So dif different slaves in different societies actually had different advantages. So these, these women, well, basically, if we go to the peak, uh, the perhaps another famous sultan that most people have heard of is Suleiman the Magnificent. We're into oh, yeah. the sort of 1500s here, okay? And he marks an era that's referred to as the Sultanate of Women because there was so much power in the harem. There was so much power playing and politicking there that actually the women quite often were the consistent rulers and the power players more than the sultans. Now, Suleiman was a strong man, but he did something shocking because although the very, very early uh, Ottoman, they weren't even sultans then, but the Ottoman leaders, they might have had wives. For more than a century, they had the harem, but they didn't have wives. 
but Suleiman fell in love. We have some of his love poetry to Roxolana, who caught his eye. So we can see the relationship blossoming between the Sultan and a slave girl who he married. This scandalized Ottoman courts because not for more than a century, way beyond living memory, a sultan did not marry one of the slave girls in the harem. But Roxolana, who had to sort of out outpace two other girls, when, when uh, she arrived in the harem, Suleiman already had two women he was really into. Uh, and so she had to wheedle her way past these two women to become, you know, the new uh, the, the, the new girl on the block with all the power. And indeed, it's interesting, she's referred to as Hurem Sultan. Hurem in Turkish means the cheerful one. So she clearly had a lovely disposition, big smiley face. We think, you know, it is a bit vague, but we think she comes from what we would say today, Ukraine. So you can start imagining, well, their kids aren't going to look very Middle Eastern, are they? And indeed, if, if every single one of these Ottoman rulers has been going out, sorry, the reason why, I should have said this earlier, these are all slave girls, but none of them are Muslim, because according to Islam, no Muslim can be a slave. So they get round it by getting Christian children or Jewish children, uh, Jewish girls and boys into the army or into the harem, and then they're converted to Islam. Now you could start saying, well, hang on, now you're Muslim, you can't be a slave, but everybody would say, yeah. shut up, this is just the way it works. But, uh, but this is the genuine words of a sultan to a slave girl. Throne of my lonely niche, my wealth, my love, my moonlight, my most sincere friend, my confidant, my very existence, my sultan, my one and only love, the most beautiful among the beautiful, my springtime, my merry-faced love, my daytime, my sweetheart, laughing leaf, my plants, my sweet, my rose, the one only who does not distress me in the world, my constantum... Constantinople, my caravan, the earth of my Anatolia, my Badakhshan, my Baghdad, my Khorasan, my woman of the beautiful hair, my love of the slanted brow, my love of eyes full of mischief, I'll sing your praises always. I, lover of the tormented heart, Muhibi of the eyes full of tears, I am happy. Wow, he is really eloquent. You know, I was thinking about uh, his ardor brings to mind Henry VIII's in terms of letters to Anne Boleyn, who also, as they we were roughly know, had to vault past, yeah, also had to vault past a couple of, you know, women in existence at court when she arrived. Uh, but, you know, the, those um, those um, Ottomans, they had a way with language that our, um, our stodgy English did not. Uh, yeah, he, he blows Henry out of the water on that. Well, yeah, I'd be, I'd be persuaded by that. But I mean, to, to give you an idea, one of the other women that she was vying against, obviously, because they were in first, they had children. So, so no matter how Roxolana works with Suleiman, the fact is, if you know, her kids are going to be younger than some of the other boys, so these kids are going to be vying against each other later on in life. And in the case of one of these boys, his name was Mustafa, there was a rumor that he was ready to rebel against Suleiman. And when this was discovered by Suleiman, he had him taken to court and executed. Now that would that get somebody out the way of Roxolana. We don't know whether he genuinely was trying to rebel or not. Uh -huh. There was no evidence of an army sitting there waiting to rise to power. 
but it's it's an example of how you know potentially this is a sign of the power playing going on in the harem so it wasn't just like girls sitting there feeding grapes to the emperor which is i think is what lots of people uh, think it might be like let's go down to that granular level um you know, I, this is a great picture of, of sort of um, the, the broader context of, of this group of, of women in the Sultan's household and their potential roles to influence policy. But let's talk about what a day would have been like for them. Let's just start when one of them wakes up and let's hear it. Well, as Muslims, they would have uh, woken up uh, about six o'clock in the morning for their morning prayers, um, after which they would have had some kind of breakfast, likely to have been the equivalent of like uh, feta cheese and olives and perhaps some flatbreads, something like that. Uh, we know quite a lot about uh, food from the uh, from the Ottoman era. So it was actually at the time of Roxolana and Suleiman that something that most people have heard of, uh, either baklava, uh, was uh, sort of created for the Ottoman court. So Suleiman and Roxolana would have eaten some baklava, but actually you can, you can trace it way back to this Roman cake, which has the worst name in all dessert history, the placenta cake. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it's literally coming from the word layers. That's what placenta means. So yes, we're not talking about that. We're talking about layers, which definitely is what baklava has. The original one uh, had um, uh, sort of like uh, bits of bay leaf in it and cheese. So it was more of a savory oh, snack. Oh, sounds delicious. Thought, I love yeah, savory. it sounds, sounds pretty good. But if you take that out and add nuts and like a syrup, you end up with baklava. Oh, uh, my, uh, my Turkish grandmother could make it from scratch, which I used to sit there watching her do and was sort of pretty amazed by. So yes, these, these girls would have been properly fed. Uh, and then invariably there would have been lessons. And the, the, what would have disrupted the day would have been is the sultan around? Because of course, uh, you know, the, uh, an Ottoman sultan would uh, love to be in the harem, but also had an empire to run. So while they actually spent, and the later on you go in the history of the empire, the more they tended to stay in Constantinople. Um, the reality is quite a lot of sultans went on campaign or they, you know, they had to take a trip to, let's say, Egypt or something like that. So, um, you know, if the sultan's around, everything stopped for the sultan. Now, I've been to Topkapi uh, in, in Constantinople. It's a huge complex, lots of alabaster and marble everywhere and lots and lots of fountains. Because if you wanted to have a private conversation, there's nowhere better to do it than standing right next to running water. Nobody can overhear you. So mm. it was a very simple solution to create a certain level level of, um, of practical safety. Also, there are lots of these little niches, niches, if you're American, in the uh, weird shaped ones in the walls. And it's like, why? Why do they have those? And that's where uh, a man, the sultan, or we'll come on to the eunuchs in a moment, um, uh, would place their turbans in certain situations to perhaps uh, pray. pray. So I said that there was no, no intact men other than the sultan but they, these ladies were very, very precious, and therefore they were guarded, and they were guarded by black eunuchs who had, these are more slaves who obviously had been genitally mutilated, but they were held in incredibly high regard. One of their nicknames were angels because they were able to pass from one world to another, i.e. they were able to pass from the normal court into the harem, and they were the only sort of men who were, who were never to be um, sort of interfered with. Um, these men uh, gave valuable, um, uh, uh, sort of like valuable information to the women inside. Uh, they would pass messages. So uh, you have this sort of whole network of slaves. And in theory, it's like, 
if, if freedom is so important, why didn't these people rise up? Like I said, the core of the army were slaves. Surely this is just a powder keg ready to explode. And yet this system lasted for centuries, which shows that if you treat people okay, feed them regularly, people don't mind so much what the situation is. You know, it's, it's hard to feel hard done by when you're, you're living in a palace. Well, yeah. And, and that's, that's really why I asked the question as I did before, you know, it just sounds like this is a slave status, a little bit different from certain others. I mean, obviously they're not um, objectively free. Um, they couldn't leave, but as you've pointed out for a lot of these individuals, the alternative was, was honestly worse. Absolutely. Uh, however, you can power play too hard. And if we sort of jump forward about a hundred years, so we're starting to see the rot beginning to set in. We, we, you know, there's, there's like five decades in the 1600s where, you know, in, in five decades, you've got five sultans. So there's a very fast turnover of sultans. And at this stage, we've got another woman who sort of like rises up above all the other ones. Her name's Kosem. And Kosem uh, is very much like Roxolana. Um, but she power played even harder. She, um, she made sure that she, she pushed the other girls out the way, obviously. Um, and she, uh, she managed to, uh, when her husband died, she was, she was on the case in terms of what do we do with, with, you know, because she had a baby. So the, her son was not ready to become Sultan yet. So let's bring in her husband's brother. Ooh, okay. Well, let's bring in Mustafa, but he had, uh, you know, we're not entirely sure, but he clearly had some kind of uh, mental illness. Um, he was seen crying when he was being, I'm going to use the term crowned. What they did is actually strap the, the belt and sword of Osman around them, but it's exactly the same as a coronation. Congratulations, you're now Sultan. It's the pinnacle of your life. You shouldn't <laughs> be sort of sitting there crying and shaking. Um, so, you know, he, he lasted for a short amount of time and then he was sort of shoved back into, the, into what was referred to as the golden cage because um, some of these men just never left and they were just sort of kept under house arrest, but it was referred to as the golden cage. And every time a new Sultan was decreed with a few exceptions, every other male heir was executed, irrespective wow. of age. If there's a three-year-old boy, and indeed at one point, when they brought out, uh, it was uh, about a dozen coffins, some of them very small coffins. There was great mourning in Constantinople and the new Sultan went, I, I think we need to change this now. So yeah, so the, 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 the air and the spare, the spare tended to be kept in the golden cage. I was just gonna say, so where was the spare or, or spares, you know, in a time Again, when... in Topkapi Palace, you, you wanna keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. So you keep them close. Uh, you, you might have one on standby. But with Kosem, uh, eventually her son uh, becomes a sultan. He's called Murad IV. Now I wanna give you the sort of the flip side of Murad IV and go back to something I said earlier, because I don't know how many people on your podcast are, have got relatives that are part of the story, but this is where I can say I've got skin in the game on this occasion, because Murad <laughs> is one of these people that if you wanna sort of portray one of these wild, despotic, exotic, um, Asian despots, he fits that bill. But also he was incredibly strong. He was the tallest and strongest Sultan. How strong? We have his weapons still existing in Topkapi Palace. It, he liked a mace. It weighed a little over 130 pounds. That's 60 kilograms, okay? He swings that. He doesn't, he, it doesn't matter what armor you're wearing, that will just brain you, okay? You're going down with that. He, uh, at, um, when he inherited the, the throne, 
um, out in the east, uh, the Safavid Empire, which is the modern-day Iran, had invaded modern-day Iraq and had nibbled away at the empire. So he went out and he campaigned, even though lots of sultans by now couldn't be bothered to go out on campaign. So he's a very brave man. He recaptured Baghdad, which was one of the jewels in the crown in the, in the uh, Middle East. So he did all these great things. He also um, uh, very much wanted to go back to Islamic law. Um, if anybody was caught drinking uh, on pain of death, you, you're going to be executed and even to the extent of coffee as well. Didn't like people drinking coffee and would even dress up as a little local, wander around the streets of Constantinople to check that everybody is okay. So these are the good things about him. However, he was a hypocrite. He died of cirrhosis of the liver, so nobody else can drink except me to excess. He was also deeply paranoid. He killed dozens of key, uh, key members of the government and also members of his family. Um, his mother, Kosem, who I've, I've already mentioned, uh, she, was, she realized that the more he got involved with women, just like she did, if you can catch the other sultan, you got power. She didn't want to get rid of that power. So she paraded lots of young, attractive men and boys in front of Murad, trying to make him gay, basically. Oh. <laughs> um, this, uh, this led to him, Murad, having a very uh, uncomfortable, misogynistic relationship with the women. On one occasion, he demanded, there's a swimming pool in Topkapi Palace, which is pretty impressive for Renaissance era, but he got all the women to jump into the swimming pool and told them to tread water. He had a, a slingshot, which he would occasionally fire off to any of the girls who were trying to get out. Some of the girls drowned, okay? That's just horrible. Um, on yeah. another occasion, uh, he was so incensed by the washerwomen washing their clothes by the sort of side of the uh, in Constantinople that uh, he he basically ordered the women to be taken away and thrown into prison. This is terrible and horrible. He, he sounds also, like that that horrible kid king in Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, name he's Joffrey. 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 <laughs> he's I've watched maybe two episodes. Sorry, but. <laughs> Um, but yes, yeah, so he, um, back in the 1600s, uh, my family was doing very well in the Ottoman Empire, and there was a general of, of one of the armies called the Duchu Hassan Pasha, and he really? was ordered to go to Constantinople, which obviously as a loyal general he did, and he had his head cut off <gasps> under oh. the orders of Murad IV. Fortunately for me, he, he was a Duchu Hassan Pasha was able to breed before he had his head cut off. I was going to say, it sounds like the, the, the family line snuck through it. Well, I'm yeah, so glad I, personally. Th thank, thank you. Thank you, Karen. But, uh, <laughs> but interestingly, the family never recovered its sort of stature. Um, so basically they ended up being sort of merchants and small time landowners in, in modern day Bulgaria. Um, that's where they suspend the rest of the time. Yeah. They were just never allowed kind of back in court ever to be a big powerful thing. But you know, this is a collection of like family, family stories and letters and things like that and me pulling up putting on my history hat as well we obviously don't know what was through his mind but we do know it would be weird for a general to willingly go and go to the capital city knowing you're going to be executed so it does look like he was innocent but just you know there's all this scheming going on under uh, under Murad's reign and indeed under, with Kosem she pushed it too far and eventually, we, we don't know which one of these is true, but the, the tradition was if a sultan or one of the sultan's children was to be executed, they were strangled. No blood should spill. So that's so, so my ancestor gets his head cut off because he's not part of the dynasty, mm. but uh, a sultan might be strangled. Uh, and in the, in the case of Kosem, she was either strangled by the curtains in the, in the harem or strangled by her own hair. Pick whichever one is the most dramatic for you. They both sound pretty dramatic. <laughs> they both sound dramatic. Jem, did these women have a, a uniform of any kind or something that marked them as members of the harem? 
Well, of course, these women weren't necessarily seen very often. Um, really, they only started going out uh, at the very end of the 19th century. But, um, you know, in, if you want to talk about typical uh, sort of like uh, Ottoman attire, you've got the mintan, which is, uh, sorry, not the mintan, the salvar, which is the loose baggy trousers that everybody associates with, uh, with the Ottoman Empire. And uh, those were worn by both men and women. And, um, uh, and uh, they'd also wear a, what's called a gomlek, uh, which is uh, like a blouse. So, so basically uh, they would wear little curly toed slippers, uh, the baggy trousers and a blouse. And um, sometimes they'd be wearing uh, the, the, the veil um, uh, and, and you, invariably something to cover their hair as well because they're Muslim women. But interesting that the veil was invented by not, if you want to look at the actual Islamic law in the Quran, all it says about women is that they should dress modestly and cover their hair. That's it. We know that the veil thing came from the Byzantine Empire. So the Byzantine women would cover their faces. I'm so aristocratic and so beautiful, scum aren't allowed to look at my face. And basically the nearest, uh, you know, the nearest civilization to them was the Ottoman Empire and the women there were going, well, hey, if the classy ladies there get to wear veils, I want to wear one too. <laughs> and now it's become part of Islamic culture. The, the Ottoman Empire really has affected Islam as a whole. It came very late, it's, it's uh, about, 600 years after the creation of Islam. It's not in, it didn't start in Saudi Arabia. It's a long way away from that. And yet when they captured Constantinople, they inherited uh, from uh, Hagia Sophia, uh, San Sophia, the big church built by the Byzantines, Justinian, um, on, on it were crescents on the, on, the top of the, uh, on the very top of the dome. So the crescent, which had never been associated with Islam, now became the standard sign you got on Ottoman flags. And since then, well, think of how many Muslim countries, Malaysia, Pakistan, Turkey, they've all used the crescent. Um, so this directly goes back to the Ottoman Empire. It's a hugely influential empire, which has been completely forgotten, unlike, say, the Roman Empire, which is kind of weird when you think about it. Going back to the harem itself, it was a place of, of learning, um, of scheming, of obviously uh, reproduction as well, when the times were right. Now, in the case when the Sultan says, I'm in the mood for love, there was actually a ritual involved with it. Oh, tell us about that. Um, so, so yes, so the, the women would be decorated with henna, or the woman, I should say, would be decorated with henna. henna and so also, he had already determined uh, who, who was the, the lucky bride that Tonight day. it's Roxolana, okay? Roxolana, get ready. And, and I'm would coming. they sort of all be waiting around every day, waiting for the call? You know, the tap, tap, tap by the eunuch saying, it's you, baby. Uh, in, in, well, I mean, uh, presumably, yes. And indeed, of course, that was incredibly high stakes. And, and so the women were vying for it because if you're never being called, you, you know, does that mean that I, I, I still haven't caught the... That sounds the really anxiety eye? producing, like a sixth grade dance a million times over. Yeah, where am I? Yeah, why don't I get to go to the prom? Uh, so yeah, that kind of thing. But the other thing, and I'm going to try and be polite about this, they, uh, the women were also ritually shaved, which again, in Europe, women didn't shave any part of themselves whatsoever then not until the 20th century that's a whole other story i can tell you about how gillette wanted to sell more razor blades but anyway <laughs> um yeah so so weirdly this is something else that kind of echoes to the modern world we understand that aspect but that would have been again completely weird to uh, a westerner a european at the same time why would they do that uh, and then um uh, but it, it was also 
And again, I'm doing my best to make sure that you, you, you keep a clean rating here, Karen. Um, it was also You're doing great. We're, th we're you, doing just much. fine. But it was also down to the Sultan to ensure that if he is having his special time with a lady, he's doing it for reproductive purposes. So nothing else was technically allowed. I'm going to leave it there. Mm, okay. Okay. <laughs> I get the picture. I get the picture. So let's talk a little bit more, if we could, about this ritual preparation. I mean, uh, presumably they were given enough notice to prepare. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what seems to have happened towards the very end, because I mean, the other thing we're talking about, we're talking about a job where we've got some information. A lot of it is quite late uh, as well, but you know, we're, this is a 600 year story. So in, clearly there were gonna be differences between one century and another century. Um, so towards the end, the Sultans were getting a bit lazy and not really wanting to go anywhere else. And they were suddenly saying things like, I'll, I'll have two tonight. And it's not like that was just not what was happening at the time of, of uh, uh, for example, Murad IV or Suleiman the Magnificent. Um, so, you know, they, they were starting to be a bit more seedy, shall we say. And also there, there seems to have been arguments where the Sultan comes in and goes, I'm ready now. And it's like, no, no, we have to prepare her. It's like, no, I'm the Sultan. I want to do it now. So, so yes, well, in theory, it was, it, you know, you can see how ritualized it was. This is why you have the, the, basically the dynasty didn't die out because you've got all these women who can potentially bear children. And for the record, the, uh, un, under Kosem, for example, um, things got so heated that we haven't talked about, we keep talking about the sons. And again, we, there's this horrible blind spot in history. It's like, yeah, what about the, count. there must've been a girl now and I guess. Yeah, absolutely. There were, there were dozens of, of mm. daughters of the Sultan, but they were basically, um, uh, they stayed in the hurry. Um, they, they don't seem to have, it wasn't like they were forced to, to marry anyone else. Uh, of course, the danger there is if you've got a, if you're sort of now genetically related to the Sultan, does that mean it gives you a claim to the throne? So it, it wasn't, they weren't well, just- it means you probably aren't going to be chosen right yeah, definitely yeah yeah <laughs> so but they were they were tricky. high status they yeah. were high status so the new girls would absolutely sort of like uh tend to the needs of somebody like roxalana you know the, the roxalana's now been in the harem for 10 years she's given birth to a boy you know suleiman's head over heels and writing lots of poetry to her the new girls in the harem would tend to her basically like servants so even though technically they're kind of in the same same strata the reality is hugely different but under kosem she uh, there, there were instances of some of the sultan's daughters doing that for kosem and some of her cohort which was an absolute no-no because you know those those were flesh and blood of the sultan that shouldn't have been allowed but there we go and the only person more powerful than the wife of the sultan is the mother of the sultan. So this is how Kosem spent quite a lot of her time power playing because she was the mum of several sultans. Um, and, you know, uh, so, you know, just all the power flowed in her. And, and of course, if you think about a court, you're probably there longer than the grand vizier, which is the equivalent of the prime minister or the generals or the admirals and things like that. So you could really pick yeah, up mom for life. a lot of- I mean, that's, yeah. that's a lifetime job, motherhood. Yeah, and indeed, there was, uh, there's this wonderful part of Topkapi Palace where there's a, basically a place where the ministers would gather. And up at the top, like one story up, there's this grilled window with a curtain across it. And so the ministers had to discuss the business of the court, and they didn't know if the Sultan was sitting on the other side of the, of the curtain, or indeed someone like Roxolana or, or Kosem. 
because which which meant that they were always on their best behavior i love it's a really simple mm. this is cctv 500 years before the invention of cctv oh i love it that's incredible they're very sophisticated in the use of the built environment in this palace it sounds like between your your um you know analog cctv of the of the listening grid and these uh, strategically placed fountains to disguise conversations that one would not want to be heard when the Ottoman Empire worked, it was really well run and efficient. I mean, if you just look at the Middle East today, you don't think of peace, love and harmony. And yet it was for centuries under the Ottoman Empire. You know, how did they do it? Well, you know, that's a whole big conversation. But the point is, it's not impossible to have peace in the Middle East. The Ottoman Empire proved it. Um, and then you've also got things like when the Ottoman army goes on campaign, they were famous for their, their fortifications, their uh, efficient marching, um, and also their camps. Um, that when during the second siege of Vienna in the late 1600s, when the uh, Ottoman army arrived next to Vienna, they set up camp. And there were, there were literally um, Austrian chroniclers saying, for a moment, we thought they were setting up a rival city. You know, they weren't going to attack. They were just going to set up something better just on the other side of the wall and everybody's going to go there. That's how impressive their, um, you know, their organization and logistics were at, at the height of its power. I'd love to hear a little bit more about hierarchies and social relations generally within the harem. Now, you've mentioned there were different statuses of harem members based on their relation to the sultan. You mentioned uh, the presence of the eunuchs. Uh, tell us a little bit more about how, how this worked as its own society within the palace. Well, you could be cynical for a moment and say it was kind of dog eat dog. In, in practical terms, nobody was your friend. Everybody's out to get you. Uh, and, and if you like, you know, I, the harem is a very contradictory place. It's a place of female servitude, undeniably, but also it's a place of female empowerment as well. And a yeah. reminder, yeah. you get some men saying, oh, you know, women are the fairer sex and blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's largely because women haven't had a chance to show, you know, bare their teeth through most of history. And, you know, when you have 300 women vying for power in a harem in Constantinople, it turns out it wasn't all peace and love. You sometimes get strangled by the curtains. So, yeah, it, it, it's... Um, <laughs> what you know, a picture. Yeah, you, yeah, you get... You get the so top, absolute top of the the pinnacle was the mum until the sultan has fallen in love and married somebody else so then you got the wives which were you know half a dozen women at most and then you've got the concubines uh, actually sorry underneath the wives you've got the 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 uh, daughters of the sultan then you've got the concubines which i said could number as many as 300 and then within the concubines there were different layers of of power as well. The ones who've been there for a few years who understand what the rules are, the absolute new girls who, you know, wouldn't even be able to read, write, probably couldn't speak um, Ottoman Turkish either. You know, the, you, you could take pity on them or you could kick them around a little bit. I guess that tells you a lot about your personality. So yeah, there were definitely different stratas, but the eunuchs seem to have been the, the, the keepers of peace. They protected these women from the outside world. They also shared messages. They occasionally strangled people. Uh, you know, they- they, they, <laughs> they just throw that in there. <laughs> but sometimes that would have been keeping the peace, right? 
Um, sometimes yes, but also the new sultan has just been crowned, again, anachronistic term. Um, so we now need to get rid of all the boys. Who's going to do it? The eunuchs. They know where the kids are and they, they can walk in. Nobody's going to stop them. That's the, they're the ones who had to do the dirty work as well. And the, the fun fact, just to make sure that everything was ready for the Sultan. I love this fact. I, I got this when I was touring the, the palace and I just burst out laughing that even when cucumbers were taken into the harem, they were mashed just to make sure no funny business. Oh, that could be funny. I won't say anything more just to preserve <laughs> our ratings as well as my own dignity. Thank you. How were these harems viewed by those outside the community? Oh, well, there's two different communities there. Inside the, the Ottoman Empire, this is the pinnacle. And it is worth, we, we keep talking about the top Kafi harem, but you know, other, if you were a rich general and you were uh, you know, living in, let's say, Eastern Anatolia, you would have a huge amount of land and you probably, you know, Muslim men are allowed to have multiple wives. So you already have technically a bit of a harem going there, but they would have had smaller harems of particularly affluent individuals. By no means, this is not like your middle-class trainer uh, or a trader or somebody like that, you know, they probably would have had one wife and be quite happy with that. But the super rich would want to have emulated the what was going on in Top Cappy, but they just didn't have the funds. It, nothing would be as opulent. Uh, again, un, under Kosem, at one point, she was given a um, a huge sable coat that we know actually covered the entire floor of one of the rooms. So she stood in this room, put on the cape, and, wow. and basically, it, yeah. <laughs> Nobody Swallowed else is going to have that money. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's emperor money, not like local land, landowner money. Right. Outside, uh, it was seen as disgusting. You know, good Christian people in the rest of Europe, you have one wife and, you know, and you're happy with that. And you, no, no, no you do 300? Yeah. Get out of here. You are, you're clearly, you're a pervert. You're, you're a deviant. You know, you're a sinner. This is, this is why Christianity is better than Islam, because look at these reprobates. You know, it was just another example of, of how alien and scared we should be of Islam. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, it is exactly that sort of cultural reaction that, that probably contributes a little bit to this squeamishness about owning up to Ottoman heritage in some of these countries. <laughs> true, true. But also the sort of the, the inherent Islamophobia in Europe is partly because you have an Islamic empire in the east of Europe that was a genuine threat for centuries. So they seem right. to be the bad guys. Now, you, you did mention about sort of other people out there. Roxolana was about the, the sort of, well, she was about the same time as somebody like Queen Mary or Henry VIII. But if you go a little bit further down the line, you get to uh, times when um, you've got France as the dominant power in, in continental Europe. And so France is causing all kinds of problems for other neighboring nations. And you, there are literally alliances between Queen Elizabeth I of England and the Ottoman Empire, where Queen Elizabeth is desperately trying to show the similarities between Protestant Christianity and Islam versus wow. those evil Catholics in the middle. It's I like, love you, it. If you <laughs> attack from the East, we attack from the West, we'll be okay. And, and so the these relationship was very cordial. There was also a weird, weird moment where the Ottoman Empire technically went as far as, as England because there's this tiny little island between England and Wales in the Bristol Channel. It's called Lundy. And during the English Civil War, nobody was there. And, and Ottoman traders landed there and claimed it as part of the Ottoman Empire for a few years. And then they got bored and left. So I, I'm thinking about 
how these harems were formed. Um, it sounds as if it was indeed a coveted position for for women. Did, did families kind of have a network that they could connect to to try to sort of sh you know shop their pretty daughters around and and i'm asking thinking about another one of our episodes that that we did um uh, voyeurs and point shoes in which you know mothers staged mothers yeah yeah all but pushed their pretty and talented dancing daughters into the arms of these wealthy patrons who would you know incorporate them into the this system which was very patriarchal and and really quite abusive in some respects but on the flip side gave them just huge social and economic potential upside that they wouldn't have had elsewhere so i guess i'm just wondering if if families had a way of sort of presenting their daughters for consideration yeah, that Barry. that was a great episode, along with the one about the uh, the sort of the fashionista girls in uh, in Ireland. Both yeah, yeah, those... that's the other example that I, that comes right to mind with this. Yeah, this empowerment uh, that that was afforded these women who were, you know, essentially pinup girls in in the 18th century Dublin, um, which is kind of amazing, and and social influencers of their time. So yeah, was there was there any some such pipeline? You know, the, the as I said early on, the, the, you have these girls who are slaves taken from their local territory, Christian, and taken to the capital city. And there were the boys as well into the army, the Janissaries, okay? Now that was literally referred to in places like Greece as the blood tax. Uh, it has a technical name, which I'm not gonna go into now. Um, so there was this, you know, appalling feeling of like, you're stealing our children and putting them into the army. You are, you, you are brutal. You know, you're going to be, you're going to be converting them to a religion I don't agree with. And also for all the boys, that means circumcision, by the way, too. So, you know, you can see how that can be shown as the most degrading crime against humanity possible, stealing children, converting them to an alien language and religion um, that is abhorrent, okay? Well, but pitting them against 300 other women trying to catch the eye of a man yeah. whose yeah, yeah. aim is to reproduce as widely as possible within this population. <laughs> However, we also know that there were families that went out of their way to send their strong boys there. Because if you join the Janissaries and you do a good job, you could end up becoming uh, a local governor. You could end up becoming a great architect. You know, it was a great stepping stone. Now, again, things are very silent about the girls because girls didn't count, apparently. So, but, I, you know, I, I would say that I think the two have to be analogous in the sense that there, there, there'll be some families who don't want their child to go. If this child is going, if this daughter is going to Constantinople, they will never see them again. Right. Okay, so that's a horrible thing to happen to a family. But there will be other families going, we've got seven daughters. <laughs> what are yeah. we going to do with the seven of right, them? Right, right. Oh, here, here comes the local lord quick. She's pretty. Send her to the local lord. And then, you know, maybe our family gets remembered down the line. Maybe, you know, there's a little part of me that ends up being an Ottoman sultan in, in a century's time. I, I, look, that, that's conjecture. I think it's pretty strong conjecture. Yeah. But yeah. Again, you yeah. get these countries talking about the rape of their resources and the stealing of their children. And technically they're right. But I also want to know, you know, in the year 1500, what on earth are you comparing it to? It wasn't sort of sunshine and rainbows for anybody then. Absolutely not. And uh, well, 
Well, here's a question. It, it sounds as if these women were, were very well taken care of within the boundaries of the harem, but what, was it a situation where they, they got, you know, goodies or, or riches on the side that they could send to their families? Well, whether they sent them to their families, uh, that I can't answer, but, they, but one of the rules were that when you left the harem, you took all your wealth with you. So, you know, if the Sultan had showered you with like gold coins one evening, then you get to keep those gold coins. Um, you know, so again, this is a weird thing. You have technically slaves who are wealthier than a free man sort of wandering the streets of, of, of Constantinople. And what's the biggest mistake a harem member could make? <laughs> Watch those curtains. No, no, sorry. Um, uh, yeah, well, and, I mean, and keep your hair short. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I, I, I think it, I, I think ultimately it's that power playing. This is where your analogy of Game of Thrones works. You either win or you die. You start playing around. You start, you know, you start going toe to toe with somebody like Kosem or Roxolana, and you get it wrong. You, you better uh, you, be good enough. Yeah. Perhaps even worse than you dying. How would you like to be standing there as they strangle your son in front of you? No, thank you. Yeah, it's it, it's one of those really fascinating um, conundrum, really. I mean, I you know, was it a good thing on balance? Was it a bad thing? You know, I mean, it's very hard from our vantage point to to look at this this distant time in history and a different culture and to pass judgment. Um, it is always tempting to do so. Uh, so I really appreciate the the subtleties of the conversation that we're having today. Well, thank you, but I, I feel that you know. I am ill-equipped as a man to make a judgment call on this lifestyle. So, you know, I, I guess I, you've been asking me all the questions. I'm going to sort of throw it over to you. What are your thoughts? You know, would you have abhorred the idea of being an, a hurrying girl yourself? Or, you know, <laughs> or would you have given it a go? <laughs> I can't believe you're turning it on me. I thought you were my friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, no, I mean, no, I, well, no, I have a knee-jerk reaction. I, I would have abhorred it. Um, there we go. That's the answer. I, then. But but I say that and I mean it. I, I, I say that as somebody who is just uh, know, acculturated in a certain way to view it that way. I can't really wrap my head around feeling any differently about it, but I can logically listen to all of the potential benefits that you've laid out for a woman at that time who was illiterate, who might've been decently good looking, who is in the middle of the sticks and her, her alternative is to, you know, marry her, her social and economic equal, um, reproduce as much as is humanly possible for as long as it's possible and and probably die in childbirth at one point without ever leaving a five mile radius of her farm so you know i i can absolutely appreciate what the attraction would be um but that doesn't mean that i would be happy doing it or i would want to do it well, and I'm going to throw it right back at you, Jem. Would you have made a successful member of a harem? And in this case, you could have been a eunuch, right? Yeah, I was going to say, it sucks for me either way, because, uh, yeah, I, I'm not a girl, uh, and I definitely don't want to be a eunuch. <laughs> no, no, that, would, that would just, yeah, that would hurt on so many levels. Yeah, it really would. Uh, can, can I be the sultan? I'd quite like to yes, be a sultan. I would, I'd, I'd love to hear how you would It's going to turn down being an Ottoman sultan, okay? Sultan. I'll, I'll take that, that gig, okay? 
Jem, thank you so much for coming back to join us and for talking to me about this really fascinating subject, which I know I brought almost zero knowledge to, and, and I expect it, it might be true of some of our listeners. So thank you. Absolute pleasure, Karen. So often in the West, Orientalist and xenophobic interpretations of the harem in history, art, and popular culture portray a world of subjugation, largely sexual, and typically deviant. But the reality was far more complex, with unique opportunities for self-empowerment if you happen to be pretty enough, charming enough, and above all, smart enough to make it happen. Time and again, women of the harem are depicted in Ottoman sources as individuals with unique political influence, integral members of a long-standing and complex power structure as mothers, wives, and daughters of the sultans. In a time when the alternative was likely a very small and short life, limited by poverty and a lack of education, many young women benefited from an institution that was fundamentally as limiting and oppressive as society in general was for women at the time. In some ways, though, we can still hear the echoes of the political gains women made behind closed doors in the Ottoman harems against all societal odds. Looking at you, Kamala. It might not have the same ring to it as Sultanate of Women, but Madam Vice President will do just fine for me right now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey guys, what's up? You can follow today's guest on Twitter at Jem Deduchu and check out his podcast, Condensed Histories, plus his book, The Sultans, The Rise and Fall of the Ottoman Rulers and Their World, A 600-Year History. Whew. As always, we're on Twitter at Working OT Series with plenty of exciting show updates. You can support the show and gain access to loads of cool bonus content at patreon.com slash working overtime. Catch you next week, you absolute boss. See you today did there it's like a all right yeah i'll see you next week bye working overtime is part of the little fire podcast network and is made in collaboration with past preservers today's episode was recorded live across the globe over zoom it was produced by karen bellinger nigel hetherington aiden law liberty and raz cunningham our director was raz cunningham follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at working ot series on twitter and working overtime series on instagram Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening.